Welcome, everybody, to the Muscle Intelligence Q&A. We have a ton of good questions coming and a lot of inspiration because BPAC is currently in Colombia, making all of us jealous, right? Is that where you are right now? Yes, I'm in Colombia. I'm in Medellin. I'm not here to make anybody jealous. I'm here to plan. Yeah, well, that's just the bonus. <laughs> I'm here to plan my life for 2020, get a lot of work done. I'm literally in hermit mode. I'm doing some masterminding. I'm doing some business meetings. And I'm also writing my course content for 2020, at least as much as I can in three weeks. There's, there's a lot to do. <laughs> it turns out that I have a lot of business management stuff as well. So I've been telling people this for a while, but I'm launching coaching. I'm launching mentorship kind of at the same time. So mentorship will be probably is a very, very small group, like 10 to 12 people and business mentorship, right? Like helping you build a brand, helping you make more money. Uh, so some really, really committed coaches who are, you know, obviously looking for fitness education, but most importantly, how to grow a business. And I'm going to run that personally. And then we'll have the physique coaching, which we have always had, I'm just going to scale it. And we have this platform that's being built and there's so much management that goes into that. It's obscene. And we were supposed to be ready for October 1st and now we're into December and it's still not ready, at least not to my standard. So we're just pushing it pushing and pushing it and now we're hopefully shooting for January 1st but all these things are just time and management and I need to expand my team I'm just as you know Ash very slow to hire after you know many years of being in business it's very easy to, to hire quick and make a mistake so I'm just looking for great people who are very organized very integrative with you know taking all this amazing ideas and amazing information we have and turning it into easy to consume online courses online products and you know et cetera, et cetera. So my needs are extensive, but again, I'm not in any rush. So that's a lot of stuff to work on in three weeks in Colombia. Well, so literally I'm up at four, well, today I was up at 5.30, but normally it's 4.30 and just hammering away until, you know, maybe seven at night and we'll go to dinner at seven at night. And it's long and I'm getting my workouts in, I'm getting some walks in kind of in intermittently, but it's literally like sit in a cafe until my ass is too sore to sit there and then go for a half an hour walk and then go to the next cafe. <laughs> so it's uh, in the order of some workspaces. People underestimate how important it is to hire people. I think it's not necessarily even that they underestimate it, but it's when you're thinking about building your own brand and your own business, people often are, you know, obviously very focused on what they're capable of doing and what they're going to produce and what they're going to put out into the world. But having the right people around you is like every everything. People don't realize how much work it takes to to find the right people, to train the right people, to just get the people who are sort of have the same vision as you. Like that's an incredible amount of work. Right. And so my mission and vision for 2020 is literally, you know, making money is inevitable when you have your heart in the right place. So my vision for 2020 is to connect with people who want to make an impact and we'll make so much more money, right? And that's the objective is, you know, not focusing on the money, just focusing on how can we help more people. And you guys hear me talk about that stuff a lot. But, you know, one thing I, we might as well talk about since we're on that topic, Ash, is like anyone out there who's got a fitness business or who wants to create a fitness business, whether that be in person or online, there's a certain number of things you need to be able to do, right? And, and you know, you build this amazing fitness skill set, which I've done for 20 years. And then you have to then transfer it into understanding business and how to grow it and how to acquire attention and how to acquire leads and then how to convert them into sales. And there's a lot that goes into that, right? I've been doing it since 2011. So I've made a lot of mistakes. I've learned a lot of great things. I've met a lot of great people. So there's obviously, you know, the facets of business and, you know, looking for people to help with lead acquisition, looking for people to help with branding, looking for people to help with design, looking for people to help with content creation and video production, and then funnel creation, and then copywriting for emails. And it's extensive. There's a lot of facets that go into that. And then for me, it's so specific to the content that I teach. Like the person needs to be competent in the content 
and competent in the skill set of you know whatever they're trying to do for me, whether it be building a funnel or helping me with whatever lead acquisition or management of systems. Like there's a lot that goes into it. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm going to help a small number of entrepreneurs with, connect them with my network and help them just you know scale from wherever they are to where they want to be. And it's always a graduated ascension of the ladder. It's not overnight. But, you know, that's kind of the plan is to do six and 12 month mentorships. And, and some of it will be very focused on business and some will be very focused on fitness, because obviously to get better results in sales and fitness, you have to be really good at what you do. So not only do you have to be the best in the world at what you do or very good at what you do, you have to then be able to get someone's attention with marketing and with social media. And social media is such a blessing to people who want to be successful in business and just learning how to kind of leverage that to your best advantage. Is this something that you do every year, like some of these kind of concentrated go somewhere and do this work, sort of like a rocky prep, but for business? Yeah, I usually do a week. So this year I'm doing three weeks because I have so much more on my plate. I just need to get it organized. So again, these three courses that I'm building, it's a lot because not only do you have to research and document, you have to create, you have to organize the thoughts and it's kind of this extensive process, you know, so there's that. And then on top of it, you're stacking all these other things like and managing the creation of the, this coaching platform and then managing the creation of I don't know, new products and making sure you're getting your client check-ins done. And like, there's a lot. So it's kind of extensive. And, and my biggest bottleneck right now, honestly, is just having a good personal assistant there to do the things that I don't, that I shouldn't be doing. Like I actually like doing some of the things like the booking of my flights and my travel. We talked about this is, you know, I need that person and I just am kind of selective with who I spend my time with, as you know, so work in progress. Yeah, I usually do it every year. And so I'm going through a goal setting process. So I have a process that I've perfected over the last few years, but I constantly try to perfect. And so doing that, and that's actually going to be available this year for the first time to everyone who signs up for our physique coaching, because I think it's so important that you set physique goals, life goals, relationship goals. So that's going to be available within the coaching platform as well. So I go through that and I reflect on the year and see what I've accomplished because I think that's a huge piece. So there's basically three pieces. There's the big picture. So your 25-year plan, like what's your legacy? You know, if I were to die in 25 years, well, how do I want to be known? Who's going to talk about me at my funeral? What are they going to say? Getting really clear on that is is powerful. And then, um, you know, setting 12-month goals and then setting three-month goals or three-month action plans more maybe more accurately. And then reflecting on the past year, just so you can celebrate, right? Because sometimes it's hard to acknowledge how far we've come. And one thing I do, if anyone's an entrepreneur, you get this, you probably get it, Ash. On my computer and on my phone, I have notes and those are obviously synced. And so I make endless notes, whether I'm learning, if I'm reading, like every book I've read has notes within the notes section, every course I take, every time I have a conversation on a podcast, there's pages and pages of notes. So at the end of the year, which is this time, I go through all those notes and I organize them into files, but I also delete the ones that I've kind of taken action on. And going through them is important because it allows me to one, get rid of all the kind of old stuff that's occupying space in my computer and in my brain, but also to just kind of celebrate, oh, wow, like, you know, I have all my to-do lists from every month I create a new to-do list or or like kind of an action item list. And I look at all of those and I reflect and I go, wow, this is, I've done so much this year, right? And sometimes it doesn't always show in the balance sheet. It doesn't always show in the bank account, right? But if you look back and you go, holy shit, I've done a lot. It's fun. You know, it's fun to do that and look back and and acknowledge your progress as a human being, for me as a dad, as a businessman. Yeah, I keep so many notes in my phone. I'm looking at it right now. I've got a stuff to talk to Ben about notes. I've got 
food notes. Every city that I go to regularly, so we're talking Ottawa, Toronto, New York, I have a note for all the restaurants and places I want to go eat. I have a books list, books I've read. Can you publish that? Yeah, 100%. Every year, I keep a list of all the books that I've read and then the ongoing books that I want to read, podcast stuff. Yeah, more stuff to make fun of Ben about. Like The list goes on. There's, there's a lot of lists there, but I think that's important. It is important to write things down because you know the stuff that can fall by the wayside, you don't want to let that happen. Okay, so I have a question for you, though. Going back to your physique program, and there's a specific physique question conversation that I want to have based on something you just posted on social media, and that is the small waist thing that everybody's chasing in bodybuilding. And I just want to make a note here before we go any further that I downloaded your quads and calves program. And it turns out the fun fact, I texted you this the other day, that your calves at their biggest were the same size as my waist at my smallest. So <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> Impressive for both of us, I think, really. But Yeah, I put in there that they were 22 inches. And that was consistently. Like at the biggest, they were actually just about 23. I didn't want to put that in there because it sounds almost obscene. <laughs> but uh, consistently 22. And then and toward the end of my career, they certainly now they've downsized a lot. And even toward the end of my career, I just kind of stopped training, which was a huge mistake, by the way. And for anybody listening who is an aspiring physique athlete or bodybuilder, if anyone ever gives you the advice to stop training a body part because it's too big, kick them in the nuts because it's the dumbest thing I've ever done. Here's why. Both of them tore, right? Why did they both tear? Well, I didn't train them for a year. And when it came down to doing super heavy leg presses to try to build my quads, well, guess what's involved in your leg press that you don't realize? It's your calves. So when I was doing really heavy leg press, I don't even remember how it happened, but both of my calves tore separate occasions, exact same spot because I lost the mobility. So training them, you know, obviously has the benefit of hypertrophy, but it also has the benefit of maintaining strength in the ranges of motion you're going to train in. So by not training in those ranges, I lost the ability to go to those ranges. So I lost what's called dorsiflexion. So anybody doesn't know what that is, it's just basically pulling your toes to your shin. And I lost that. So if I go into a deep squat or deep leg press, guess what, what you need? Or even hack squat, you need dorsiflexion. So I was exceeding my body's ability to dorsiflex and both of the calves at some time popped. Now, it didn't have bruising. What I had was extreme doms. But guess what? I had extreme doms anytime I did a little bit for quads or calves because they, I'd never trained them. So anytime I just even just a little bit, I had extreme doms. So when it tore, I guess I didn't associate like, oh, it's torn. It was just, it felt like it was just sore from training, which is again, I won't throw anyone under the bus who told me that bad advice, but don't ever do that. And even if it's decreasing the frequency or decreasing the volume or the intensity, you still train that body part because the body's an integrated system. If you have massive arms and you stop training your arms, I guarantee you're begging for shoulder problems because you don't realize you're, the long head of your bicep and your tricep crosses over the shoulder joint. It's one of the primary stabilizers of the shoulder joint, right? Oh, I'm not going to train arms because they're too big. Well, that's dumb. I'm not going to train anything. It's, it's just a bad idea. Yeah. All right. So going past your freak calves, let's talk again about small waist and how to train for that. Is it about just making other things appear bigger? So how do you train for a small waist? Sure. So like every bodybuilder on the planet, I wanted to be the biggest guy in the world. And I didn't just want to be the biggest guy in my gym or in my, my country. Like I wanted to win Mr. Olympia. So to do that, I was comparing myself against other people, right? Early in my career, I was like, well, you know, if I'm not as good as Flex Wheeler, I'm shit. And like, I literally started saying that when I was 17 years old, everyone go, oh man, you're getting so big. Good for you. And I was like, nah, man, until I look like this, I'm nothing. And that was my mindset. So as I progressed through my bodybuilding career, there was still this conscious, maybe even unconscious endeavor to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And what people don't realize, I have a large structure, right? When you hit a certain body weight, there's a huge amount of calories that need to be consumed. So on an average day in my off season, I was consuming six to 7,000 calories average. 
So typically about a thousand calories per meal, six to seven meals a day. Some of that was liquid, some of that was solid. I learned a lot of strategies to consume more calories with less overall food. So if you're eating oatmeal or something and you're eating it really, really dry, right? You put a whole bunch of water in there, all of a sudden you're really, really full. You can't get calories in. So, and then you're taking a lot of digestive enzymes, you're taking a lot of hydrochloric acid things to optimize digestion, not consuming a lot of solid foods around your workout, et cetera, et cetera. But point being, you're consuming a lot of calories. So your stomach is effectively always full. You know, one of the jokes I often made when I was competing was you have to you know, train to failure and eat till failure, which is not an exaggeration. Like this eating until you can't eat anymore and you develop kind of an aversion to eating because it's doing it so much. Point being, do that for 15 years and guess what your stomach's going to look like? It's going to be bloated. I don't care who you are. So if you're a 212-pound bodybuilder, that's a completely different physique than someone who's walking around at 300 pounds competing at 285, right? So at 285, I have to eat a shitload of calories even when I'm dieting to sustain my muscle. So there's constantly this full stomach feeling, right? Well, how do you feel after Thanksgiving dinner? Imagine having Thanksgiving dinner six times a day for 15 years. So you're like, just like, oh, I don't want to eat anymore. I don't want to do it. But you know, if you don't, you don't do it, you lose muscle or you lose weight, or at least that was the belief at the time. So it's just constant, constant, constant. Your stomach's always full and bloated. And guess what happens to your ability to control that muscle? You lose it. You start stretching out your transverse abdominis and all kind of the internal musculature. You see a lot of guys gain that diastasis recti, which is like that split in the middle of their abdominals. That's what that from just from eating too much and being bloated if i'm trying to maintain this much muscle and grow as much muscle that's a necessity how do i get around that it's almost an impossibility right so during the end of my career again point being my waist got bigger than i ever wanted to be and i even didn't like the way i looked i was like man like i'm absolutely shredded and my stomach's hanging out everyone goes oh it's gh belly i'm like dude i never fucking use any substantial amount of gh i won't say that i didn't but it wasn't like some of these other guys who had a small waist right like some guys are using high numbers of substances and relative to everybody else, I was always relatively conservative. I certainly will admit I had my moments, but I was relatively conservative, particularly with things that I knew were going to build my waist because I was so conscious of my waist. So I didn't like my physique. So my last year, I said, listen, I'm going to compete again, but my only goal is to make my waist the size of my legs. Like I want to go on stage with 33-inch quads and 33-inch waist. That was the goal. And I was like, let's make this happen. What's it going to take? So it was literally being absolutely conscious. And I, and I wrote this in my social post. If anyone's not following me on Instagram, check it out. You can get, give you details on this. There's three things that I think, well, that I know were what I did. One, and it's not in this order on Instagram, but this is the order I'll present today, is I had to massively decrease the size of my meals so that I was never, ever, ever full or bloated. So I decreased the size of the meals significantly, which meant, yes, I had to eat more often, but I ate smaller meals. I was never full at all. I was never bloated. So why does that matter? Because that allowed me then 24 hours a day or when I wasn't sleeping to control my waist. So I had to gain control of those abdominal muscles that I had lost control of. So obviously there was a degree of hypertrophy to the abdominal muscles, but those muscles are so thin inherently that you could hypertrophy your abdominal muscles significantly and you could still have a relatively small waist relative to your structure, right? We won't get into that. But point being, I decreased the size of my meals and that was first. So my acid test was... After every meal, could I still control my waist? Could I still, you know, hit an ab pose? Could I still hit a vacuum pose, which is effectively for people to know that is taking your belly button and pulling it as far as you can into your spine. And that's really what this was. And that was always my acid test. Could I do this? And if I could, then I know I had eaten an appropriate meal. If I couldn't, I did eaten too much. And that was always my acid test. So relatively, I ended up eating a little bit less food. So thereby, I ended up coming in a little bit smaller. And I'll be completely honest with that. There's two reasons I came in smaller. One, my substance program was significantly less. 
And two, my food was significantly less. At that point, I had decided on this reality that I wanted to show up and look like one of the guys in the early 90s, right? One of the guys who had these beautiful, aesthetic, flowing physiques. And I was previously known as being, you know, the big freak. I was like, I just want to bring a completely different look. So meal control, size of your meals, that's huge for bodybuilders, less for physique and bikini athletes, but still a thing. And the other two would be most relevant to everybody across the board. You have to gain control of your breathing. Most people in general breathe in their chest because they have a stressed breathing pattern, right? They breathe into the upper chest and it's very panicky almost. It's never really into the belly, into the diaphragm. And most athletes in the physique world think, I can't breathe into my stomach. It's going to show on stage. Absolutely incorrect. By breathing into your stomach, into your diaphragm, breathing down. So when you inhale, your breathing, your diaphragm expands down into your pelvic floor. When you exhale, it expands up and up and like kind of into the rib cage. Is so vital to your physiology and your ability to produce stability at your trunk and spine that if you don't do it, those muscles by definition have to hypertrophy, right? So let's say I have a 400 pound squat on my back, Ash, and I don't have that intra-abdominal pressure from the diaphragm expanding down into the pelvic floor. Well, what then is going to cause stability at my structure? It's my abdominals, right? So we don't have that kind of Valsalva internal pressure created from the diaphragm expanding down into the pelvic floor. So now my abdominals have to work harder. Oh, that's interesting. So guess what happens when those muscles work harder? They're going to hypertrophy because your body's literally going to be bent in half when you're squatting and deadlifting because you don't have the diaphragm down there to expand out into your abdominal wall. So now those muscles are going to work harder and grow. And that happens in so many bodybuilders. Second reason, if we're breathing down there, if we're expanding the diaphragm into our pelvic floor and exhaling and letting it come way up, we're gaining control, conscious control of those muscles. So why does that matter? Well, when I'm on stage, my waist could have been just as big as it was in the past, but what it wasn't was ever hanging out, right? So even if I wasn't able to reduce my waist, which I did, but if I wasn't, I still had exponentially greater control of my ability to show it. Like I could have held the vacuum and, and still like, not like I could, but I could still do it probably for a minute maybe five minutes without having to ever let it go. Well, how do you do that? Well, I can do it and not hold my breath, right? So now I have this waist that looks exponentially smaller and still while breathing. Obviously, when you're holding a vacuum, you're not breathing into your diaphragm, but that's a skill that I learned by being able to contract and expand the diaphragm. Remembering the diaphragm is a muscle, right? So that muscle needs to expand when you breathe in. It needs to contract. Actually, I think that's backwards, but it needs to relax when you exhale, right? So once I gain control of that consciously, now I can do that anytime. Time. And now I've shrunk in the waist and now I can able, learn to control the abdominals all around. There's no more bloating, there's abdominal control, and there's tons of practice. And those are kind of my three points. So it's portion control, it's breathing, and it's practice. Like you actually give a shit, right? Most people say, oh, you know, I can't make a waist smaller. Well, how many times a day are you practicing vacuums? How many times a day are you posing? How many times a day are you doing conscious, deep breathing? And most people's answer is zero. First of all, this is just like an amazing deep dive on a very specific topic that I think people are going to love because it's so rare that we get a chance to have someone like you just sort of give the lowdown on like a very specific part or part of bodybuilding. Sure. I was absolutely obsessed, Ash. Like I was obsessed with that more than I was with anything else, right? Because like I hate it. 
anyone ever going, man, your stomach looks big. And it fucking drove me crazy. And I was like, well, I'm a bodybuilder. I'm not supposed to have a big stomach. Why have I let this happen? And the reason I let it happen is because I was chasing other people's physique, right? I was chasing Kai Green. I was chasing Big Ramy. I was chasing all these other Dennis Wolf. And I want to be as big as those guys. For me to be that big, I need to eat. So it was a huge problem. And one thing I'll say, notice nowhere in that conversation did I ever say I wore a waist trainer. Well, nowhere in that conversation did I even say I wore a belt, Right. Like it's complete fucking nonsense. And I get from a marketing perspective, everyone and his brother now has a waist trainer, you know, company and they're all selling it, trying to capitalize on it. But it's fucking bullshit. Like the only thing it's doing, if it is effective, you wear it long enough and tight enough, it can reshape your rib cage. Ask yourself, do I want my rib cage to be smaller? Like your body was built that way for a reason. Anyways, won't get into that. There's that. But most waist trainers aren't even doing that, right? Like let's just say this again in our typical straightforward way for the ladies in the back, because I still see so many women doing this. Most of them are wearing sort of tight, stretchy little thing around their waist that is not in any way going to reshape their rib cage. It's doing absolutely nothing. It actually can. Your lower floating ribs can move. And if you do it long enough, it'll stay that way. So now think of how bad that is long-term for your spine, right? You're moving these floating ribs that are connected to your spine. And like that's a huge problem, right? Huge, huge problem. Anyways, no point. I think waist trainers are so dumb. Well, they're really stupid. But here, let's, let's talk about what they do do. They do compress your organs temporarily, right? So when I'm training and I leave these things on, people leave these things on for days. They wake up and go, oh, my waist looks smaller. Absolutely. You're literally compressing your organs, shunting blood away from that, just like you were doing some blood flow restriction to your arms. You're kind of restricting everything in there. The blood flow gets taken away from that area and sent to other places. So of course, while you're wearing a squeam or, or a waist trainer for 12 to 24 hours or any amount of time, it's going to shunt blood away from that area. So that's going to cause temporary changes. But as far as long-term changes, the only way to do it is to change your ability to control or atrophy those muscles. And, and maybe waist trainers could potentially atrophy muscles, but I don't think anybody wants to atrophy their muscles because I've probably met like three humans in my life who actually have a significantly hypertrophied abdominal wall. Like some top bodybuilders do, but that's because their breathing is poor, right? Did that make sense when I explained why the diaphragm is so important in trunk stability? Like if I don't, this diaphragm is supposed to expand down into my pelvic floor and most people don't do that. They have such shallow breath patterns that they never always breathe up in the chest. And now their, their abdominals, particularly, you know, the rectus abdominis and external obliques are asked to do exponentially more work when it comes to spinal loading, when I go into a squat or a deadlift or really any exercise, I don't have that internal pressure to that's supposed to be the primary stabilizer of my trunk and spine. So now my body has to exponentially increase the firing rate of the muscles. That's what makes those things grow. And so again, would a waist trainer help that? Not in any way that's going to be significant. An internal stimulus is always going to be stronger than an external one, right? You know, breathing is going to be better for improving your back mobility and your shoulder mobility than stretching or than any massage ever could because it's an internal signal that signals your nervous system, creates a hormonal cascade, an enzymatic response that causes an internal change. Rather than me jamming my elbow into something, I can actually have my body and my nervous system and the endocrine system say, hey, hey, tissue length, you need to change rather than, hey, just go jam that, that lacrosse ball or that foam roller into your X body part. Okay. I have another question about waist size, and this is about exercises. I can speak for myself as a figure competitor. 
I naturally have a very small waist. That was kind of just a lucky genetic thing that I had going into competing. But I also came from CrossFit background and powerlifting background where... I won't judge you for that. Yeah, I know. Well, you can if you want. It's kind of funny. But I I learned a lot from all of these things. But I do come at this from, I want aesthetics, but I also want functional fitness that is good for my body and movement and for being strong. So I always cared about this breathing, this stability, and this ability to brace and all of these things for lifting. But I also did not want to add any size to my waist whatsoever, right? As a figure competitor specifically, you really want to have that nice V taper and the small waist. And so I never did any extra kind of like oblique stuff or like crazy heavy ab stuff. Like I literally was just like, I'm doing deadlifts and like pull-ups and like some planks and stuff. My abs are pretty good when I'm lean. Like it is what it is. But are there exercises that you can do like core strength exercises that are going to help tighten that area? And conversely, if you look at a lot of CrossFitters, especially, and this isn't a judgment call, it's a sport specific kind of body type. A lot of these CrossFitters have big, thick, muscular, wide trunks and midsections. And you got to believe that it's from like these crazy, heavy, high volume, high weight cleans and deadlifts and all this stuff that they're doing. So are there exercises that you could be doing that you think is just strengthening your abs and making you stronger, but is actually widening your midsection as well? So have you ever done a, a I'm going to guess the answer is no, but I'm asking anyway. So have you ever done a cadaver course, Ash? Uh, that's an awesome question. And <laughs> no, I haven't, but I'll add it to my 2020 list of goals. Yeah. Well, we'll do it together. So if you look at the actual thickness of the abdominal wall in a really well muscular person, so like me during my peak, the thickness of the rectus abdominis may have been half an inch. So maybe three quarters, not wouldn't be three quarters of an inch, less than three quarters of an inch. My greatest level of hypertrophy, the thickness of my abdominal wall was probably three quarters, half an inch to three quarters of an inch, somewhere in that realm. So to add any amount of hypertrophy to that is going to be so insignificant to the actual circumference of your waist that it wouldn't be noticeable. The only way I would suggest you could add it is if it was significantly intentional loading. If I was a strong man, if I was a power lifter, I'd want to make my trunk like a fire hydrant. So I'd be doing things like really, really heavy loaded side bends and, and things like really, really heavy loaded anti-extension type exercises. But it would have to be so heavy, so frequent, and so hard, Ash, that no human being, no professional bodybuilder, no physique athlete does it anywhere near that. So if my rectus abdominis was three quarters of an inch, say just arbitrary three quarters of an inch, in order for to see a significant change, I'm going to have to double that as far as the actual size of my waist, right? So let's say I had three quarters of an inch to my waist of actual hypertrophy. Well, how much is that going to take away from my appearance? Three quarters of an inch, it's nothing, right? It's so insignificant. And you, you probably had I don't know, certainly less than maybe a quarter of an inch of abdominal thickness, maybe a little bit more than that, but not very much. So it's so insignificant that people are confused as to what contribution it's actually making. It has very little, I won't say nothing, but very little to do with the size of your waist, like the actual hypertrophy of those muscles. So what I would suggest people do is do train those muscles because they're the limiting factor in your ability to produce force everywhere. So what you want to do, where hypertrophy will typically happen is where movement happens, right? So let's say I'm doing a deadlift and we've all seen people who kind of round their back at a particular spot in their spine on a deadlift. That particular segment of the spine, the muscles that surround it are going to hypertrophy most. So when there's movement, it's because 
let's say I'm trying to do a deadlift, I'm trying to maintain spinal extension, or at least a neutral spine. And I go through this deadlift and at some point in the deadlift, the weight's so heavy, my spine starts to round a little bit. So now I've actually gone through an eccentric loading or a concentric loading of that particular area of the spine. That's where it's going to hypertrophy. So that's what's going to happen with your waist. If you're doing squats or deadlifts or something, if there's a particular aspect of your waist that tends to cave, to break because it's the weakness, that will be the point that would be tending to hypertrophy more. So point being, if we create stability at all lengths of this contractile range, so lengthened, mid-range, shortened contractions of all the abdominal muscles, and they're relatively equally balanced in their ability to maintain spinal extension or prevent spinal extension, the likelihood of hypertrophy is effectively zero, like at any significant amount, unless you're really, really consciously trying to do it. Like I'm talking leg day type training to try to do it, right? Like how do you build your legs, Ash? Is it easy? Like if you do like a few, you know, six to 10 sets, moderate weight, is it going to build it? No, but it could certainly make it more dense potentially, right? So it's not going to add a significant amount of hypertrophy. Anyways, it's a long kind of tangent to talk about that. No, I think this is super, super cool. And we haven't really covered this stuff before. So I really appreciate it. One last ab question. You talked about ab separation, right? That occurs with a lot of these bigger bodybuilders. Yeah. And like women, of course, know it more commonly from pregnancy, right? It's a thing that happens to a lot of women because they're getting big bellies too for other reasons. But what are some ways that you personally or that you know in the bodybuilding world that bodybuilders can work to fix that problem while still being big and still lifting and still working hard? I don't know that you can fix it, but I think the solution is training your abdominals, right? So if I'm getting too big and my waist is growing, my ability to control my abdominals goes out the window and those muscles just lengthen and stretch. So once you've got it, I can't say that you can't, but I won't say that you can change it. So the trick is prevention, right? If I train my abdominals every day, I'm just effectively making those muscles stronger, kind of like hernias, right? Hernias is just like a defect in the muscle that sometimes causes a bit of a tear of the abdominals. But so if I have strong muscles that are strong from the entire length of contractile training, the likelihood of, of that stuff happening becomes significantly less. And the biggest mistake bodybuilders make is not training their abdominals. Like, oh, I'm not going to train my abs in the off-season. Okay, dummy, how many hernias are you going to end up with, right? There's a lot of bodybuilders that get hernias or get diastasis erecti. It's just not a good idea to not train, like me with my calves. Great podcast. Love chatting about the stuff. I think people will appreciate perspective on waist trainers and actually what is actually necessary. I think it's human nature that we want to have the easy path. Right? Oh, if I could just wrap this thing around my waist, it means it's going to make my waist smaller. Eh, no, no, no. I didn't talk a lot about this, but I was obsessed, Ash. Now, you know me, right? Like I was really ridiculously obsessed with being a great bodybuilder. And so I thought about constantly walking around with my shirt off at that time to make sure that I always had my stomach pulled in or I was always never letting it fall out. But hopefully people value this, guys. And if you did, we'd appreciate you guys share this podcast with at least one person you know and love. This is the Muscle Intelligence Q&A brought to you today by Chili Pad. You guys know Ash and I have both been utilizing and benefiting from our Chili Pad as an athlete and a bodybuilder. Sometimes it's hard to sleep when it's hot, right? We just have natural higher body temperatures. So sometimes it's very important to have something that allows you to bring your body temperature down short of like cranking up the AC and your partner getting really angry with you. It's a super awesome advantage to be able to have the chili pad. I've actually been using their newest model, the Uller, and I can turn my side down all the way to 55 degrees of the bed. And it just feels awesome. You wake up in the morning feeling like you're rejuvenated. My deep sleep as measured by my aura ring is exponentially higher. It's 15% off at chilipad.com using the code muscle sleep. So if you actually correct, it's correction. It's chilitechnology.com. Sorry, not chili pad. So it's chilitechnology.com slash muscle intelligence. If you guys want to check that out and that's spelled C-H-I-L-I-T 
E-C-H-N-O-L-O-G, technology, chillytechnology.com slash muscle intelligence. And you can use the code muscle sleep, which will get you all the way up to 225 bucks off. I hope you guys love it. And I hope you share it with at least one person you know and love. And thank you guys so much for supporting the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. For Ashley Van Houten, I am Ben Pekulski signing off. And don't forget to join us on Instagram, guys. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.